Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. I'm your host, Mike Davis, and each week I bring you conversations with local purpose-driven leaders. Leaders creating social impact through their work and inspiring positive social change across a wide variety of sectors. Sit back, tune in, and enjoy the next 40 minutes guaranteed to inspire you with our signature blend of wisdom, experience, and banter. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. The expectation in the future is that businesses will also measure their direct impact on nature. And we know that over 50% of our GDP is heavily dependent on nature. Mm. No sector is uh, not tarnished in terms of its direct impact and reliance on nature. Yep. So measuring that, minimising what you can, and then mitigating the rest. And that's where I guess we'll see the Yes. Welcome back to another action-packed episode of Humans of Purpose. First off, a big thank you to our major sponsor, Neon Treehouse, for all their wonderful social media support. I hope you've enjoyed our short two-week focus on the Middle East. The numbers and feedback I've received certainly suggest that these episodes have been well-received and have been well-balanced and highly informative and educative for folks, which is great news all round. Now back to regular programming this week on the podcast, I'm thrilled to welcome Ash Knopp, the co-founder and CEO of Wilderlands, to the podcast. Wilderlands have developed one of the world's first voluntary biodiversity credits and launched a platform to make it easy for anyone to start protecting nature today. I met Ash and the Wilderlands team recently at the Melbourne Accelerator Program Showcase Pitch Night and Expo, and the work Ash and the team at Wilderlands are doing in this conservation and climate tech space is nothing short of phenomenal. I think their biodiversity credit solution has tremendous game-changing potential for people and businesses thinking about contributing to better environmental and planetary outcomes. I've had a fair few queries about how people can support the podcast in the past few weeks. Well, it's pretty simple. On an individual level, you can become a gold member, where for the price of a coffee each month, you'll get a premium podcast experience, including early access to episodes, no ads, broken connections to our guests, and a range of other podcast perks. Just hit the link in our show notes for that. If you're interested in showcasing your brand, organisation or goods and services, we have a range of promotional and sponsorship packages available. You can check these out in our show notes and all you need to do is fill out our expression of interest form once you've had a look at the linked promo packages PDF and we'll get back to you within a week. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Ash as much as I did. Ash, thanks so much for stopping by. Great to have you here with us on Given's Purpose. Cheers, Mike. Um, lovely meeting you and the team at MAP the other day, the, the pitch night. How did you find all of that? Uh, look, every uh, every opportunity to talk about what we're doing uh, is a great opportunity and we've thoroughly enjoyed being part of the MAP and Melbourne Uni uh, program. So, uh, yeah, it, it, terrific, absolutely terrific. For those who uh, don't uh, like acronyms or aren't familiar, MAP being uh, the Melbourne Accelerator Program. Correct. It's part of uh, Melbourne Uni's uh, excellent startup ecosystem. Yeah, we're one of 11 startups that got into the MAP program. Uh, and throughout the course of a curriculum of about four to five months, you get uh, coaching and mentoring, um, as well as the opportunity to be guided by um, experts in the field in the startup ecosystem. And uh as well as journeying with other startup founders, you know, and, and 
riding the highs and lows with them. As an outsider, coming along to see um, all the expos and the pictures was just great. And I must say, um, particularly Wilderlands, how you did it was very captivating with sort of the imagery. And I think maybe that's a big part of it is sort of like letting people see biodiversity as a sort of starting point or entry into the story. Before we get to that, um, talk to me and our audience a little bit about how you first became interested in the environment and conservation. Yeah, probably goes back even before my initial engagement in the environmental sector. Uh, like yourself, Mike, I've spent most of my career working in the cause uh, sector, not-for-profit sector, uh, dedicating myself to, um, I guess, elevating brands that I feel aligned with. Uh, it probably started as a very young guy growing up in a household where my parents were worked for the Salvation Army, and so saw from me and modelled from a very young age uh, what it was like to live a life of purpose and, and giving back. Uh, and so that led to things like working uh, myself for the Solvos and then eventually World Vision International and International Aid and Development and then the Leukemia Foundation, so in health. And uh, each opportunity gave me, uh, I guess, uh, the, the chance to spread my wings, to try new things, to take on more responsibility and at the same time, I was also, uh, I guess you'd call a bit of a serial entrepreneur, trying new things, uh, different sectors and so on. And, and so uh, actually it all kind of hit when COVID came. Uh, I had a business that um, had me traveling a little bit, running events and tours overseas, and then that hit the skids. Uh, and it was through my business partner in that venture that I met my uh, now business partner in Wilderlands, and that's Paul Detman. Paul's a sixth-generation farmer who grew up on the land out in Kyneton and for the last near 30 years has been looking at land management through a very different lens. How do we um, ensure that the way that we manage land fulfills our food security and agricultural needs as well as our environmental biodiversity and social and cultural needs. And so Paul's been a real pioneer in looking at new ways to manage land for all of those purposes and outcomes. And it was in chatting with Paul, I came on board to help identify some innovations within his business that we started to see a real opportunity in this emerging biodiversity credit space, uh, a really nascent space, frankly, it, it's, and it still is. Uh, but effectively, it and the way that we kind of demonstrate or, or speak to it is, you know, you can make money clearing land, you can make money restoring land, but incentivizing protecting what we've already got has been a challenge. And so what we've essentially created is a mechanism that helps people who want to protect land and native vegetation on their privately held land um, to help raise funds to support that work because that work is critical and it's costly. Um, and so it was really through engaging with my co-founders and bringing that experience of cause-related partnership development, strategy development, as well as a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit within me that's like, well, let's give it a crack. Love it. Uh, love the balance of entrepreneurship, uh, but also the cause-related work as well. And I'm curious, like, did you find at times in those bigger not-for-profits that they were a bit at odds or they, they embraced that sort of entrepreneurial spirit? Uh, they would certainly give it lip service, you know, and I guess it depended on where within the organisation you sat. Hmm. Um, you know, I was very fortunate to to work with and under some incredible people at World Vision 
in the kind of corporate and community partnership space. And so we were working very diligently with incredible businesses that wanted to have impact. And, and we did that. And, and yet the challenge was, of course, internally as an organization, uh, you're driven by a whole range of needs. Your, your resources are pulled in many different ways. And when you have a program and a product like child sponsorship, uh, which gets rightfully so a lot of attention and resource, it's kind of hard to pitch into your internal teams that there's meaningful opportunities outside of that. Yeah. And so it does at times feel like you're pushing against the grain, even though you are wearing the T-shirt and, you know, part of the broader organisation. Yeah, I think that's really well said. I, I think there's an interesting thing also in that about the stickiness of the for-purpose or cause-related sector. Like it is so much, I feel like, a inherited parental thing or like, you know, you just grow up with those vibes and you just need to do it. Like my folks are both public servants and I just felt very drawn to it in my whole life. Um, and then it's a bit like, um, you know, how they say in Sopranos, like, <laughs> or the Godfather was it, you know, like every time I tried to get out, they pulled me back in. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you, you consider doing other things and you might have some um, entrepreneurial trysts, but then you have to give it the right amount of time to sort of, you know, see it play out and really, you know, do your time in that space. And I think there's absolutely room for charity and not-for-profit Um alongside social enterprise and alongside overtly for-profit entities when it comes to trying to create impact, you know. And for us at Wildlands, for instance, whilst we are a a for-profit social enterprise, we are partly owned by our own foundation, Mm -hmm. um, which we've established because impact is what drives us and we want to ensure that, um, I guess, customers that buy and and partners that align with us uh, are aware of that. Uh, but we've deliberately chosen to be for profit because we work in a space that needs scale and you can't necessarily rely on donors um, or grants to fulfill your needs in that. Yeah. It also sets a real imperative for us that we've got to demonstrate that we are worth supporting. Yeah, 100%. And I do think in a way that's the value of whether it's held by a foundation or something else, that that business sort of mindset. And I think, you know, entrepreneurship, um, the ultimate test is will people pay for it? Um, And, you know, even if it does have impact and purpose attached to the end, I think luckily we're in an era now where people factor purpose and impact into their purchase decisions more than ever. So that's a great thing for the type of uh, orientation you're in. It's being able to demonstrate that you will maximise um, a contributor or a donor uh, their, or a customer's uh, dollar. Yep. And that's something that we pride ourselves in and the mechanism that we've created and the ability to uh, lean right into that one square metre of impact. So that's, let's get into that one square metre. So if the problem, um, if we frame the problem statement as being the protection or the appropriate protection or comprehensive protection of certain units of, of land, what does um, an effective solution ensure um, by way of solving that problem? Yeah, well, I guess if you start at the very top, Um, Australia is aligned with global commitments to protect 30% of nature by 2030 as one of the the many things that we need to do to demonstrate that we're trending in the right direction. And uh, to put it frankly, for Australia to do that, we need to protect in the next seven years the equivalent of about 60 million hectares, which is about 10 Tasmanias. That's a lot of land Mm. um, and that's on privately held land. 
So we have approached this uh, with this concept of um, not everybody can protect 60 million square metres, but perhaps we can start with one square metre. Perhaps you and I can do one square metre today and two square metres tomorrow, and now we can convince family and community and eventually businesses that this is the right thing to do. I'll commit to five right now. Oh, How's that? Well, you can jump online and commit <laughs> to ten. Bang. Fact. And so it really is about trying to break that down to something that's very approachable whilst recognising that this is only going to work at scale. And so we work and speak to individuals who will protect 10 square metres today and at the same time have conversations with businesses that you know, are going on a nature-positive journey, exploring what does it mean for them to understand, to measure and mitigate against the impact they're having on nature yep. and how might they engage with wildlands in protecting ecosystems that are mm -hmm. vulnerable. So, so on that, I mean, when we talk about protecting land and you're very much focused on a biodiversity lens rather than a sort of a carbon reduction lens, which we'll get into as well, if I want to protect uh, five to ten square metres of land on my uh, property, on my estate, what does it mean to protect it? What, what do I do? Yeah, great. Well, it does start with individuals wanting to do the right thing. Um, so not to get too technical, but our uh, methodology, which is kind of like our standard or our promise, every biodiversity or credit developer needs to have that, um, is predicated on a couple of key things, and one is permanent protection. And the way that that works is in most states in Australia, there are legal mechanisms called conservation covenants that a landholder can place over the title of their land, assuming that it is of high ecological value. So uh, you, you and everybody could help protect nature by ensuring that the habitat in your back or front yard is managed for you know, whether it's the birds or the bees or the other. But when it comes to large tranches of remnant vegetation where threatened ecosystems yep. and habitats live, there's mechanisms like conservation covenants which are critical to ensuring that that land is managed for nature outcomes. Yep. There's a whole bunch of things you're not allowed to do. There's a whole bunch of things you're, you're yep. meant to do. Yep. And often that comes with a requirement of expertise and at a cost. And that's another reason why we've established this mechanism to say, well, good on you for doing that altruistically, but ultimately it's going to come at a cost, whether it's engaging in conservation organisation or other. And so through the mechanism of these units, we're going to help fundraise for your activity on yep. your land. Yeah, no, it makes, makes a lot of sense. And so, you know, to your example, presumably it would be far more useful to, to for me to contribute to credits that protect uh, land that is going to make more of a difference, like you talked about remnants. I, I guess you're talking about like pasture land, or yeah. And, and I guess to to touch on that, I mean, most of Australia's threatened ecosystems and vulnerable habitat is on privately held land. Sure, sure. And the way in which people obviously earn a living when you own land is largely make it work for you. Yes, you know, yeah, uh, cattle graze whatever. Um, and we're certainly not against that. We're not about landlocking um, vegetation for the sake of that. But what we recognise is that uh, much like the broader goal of protecting 30% of nature by 2030 is that we should th have throughout the landscape these pockets and corridors of habitat protection that fit neatly alongside agriculture and yep. regeneration projects and the like. Uh, it makes total sense. I mean, so, you know, just say there's 100% of an allotment that's, you know, 30 to 
you know, 20 acres, I don't even know farmland that well, just say it's 20 or 30 acres or something, but maybe the, the grazable area is, you know, 15 and then you've got five left. What do you do with that five? Yeah. Um, and is there an opportunity there to protect that five um, and maybe for a business or individual to buy credits of that five? Yeah, and that's exactly how it works. Yeah. I mean, we need to ensure that the projects that we protect uh, meet standards, so they have a high enough ecological value that they that they would be permanently yep. protected through covenants. And we've got our own assessment criteria that every project goes through. What What's really important then, though, is, and this has been occurring now in our country for over 60,000 years, is that the land is appropriately managed. Yes. That we can't just let, due to land clearing and the introduction of invasive species, if we just allow remnant patches to look after themselves, they're going to be overrun. We're going to lose them. We're yeah. going to lose the threatened species. So it's really important that that protection occurs and it's active and it's done by experts. Great. So makes a lot of sense. And I think on your website, what I saw is that a business or an individual could, uh, you have sort of like some properties or projects up there and then people are buying credits towards a percentage of that project. So kind of like a Kickstarter in a way. Is that sort of the the model, correct? Yeah. Essentially, each project has so many credits available. Once we sell a credit, and a credit represents a very unique one square metre plot. It's been geotagged. And so you own uh, the or you sponsor that very square metre of activity. I'm the protector of that square metre. It's my protector. I'm the emperor of that square metre. Indeed. Responsible for its security and well-being. <laughs> well, we'll look after that or our conservation partners <laughs> well, you will look after yeah, that, but you yeah. get to claim that yeah. impact. Do yeah. I get any sort of title out of this? You get a certificate which okay. speaks to that very square metre. Yeah, not, uh, not that, not that I, I require one to do this. But I you appreciate know. Well, one of the things that we've come to appreciate <laughs> is that not only is the protection critical, but telling the story is absolutely essential. And the more you experience these projects and these ecosystems, whether that's physically through getting access to a project or whether it's through technology, yeah. and storytelling, and so on, the more you're going to buy in. And what's the effective, what have you found are the most effective mechanisms to get that kind of emotional heart brain connection to that piece of land? Is it that I um, throw into this project and I get to go visit and have a look and say, oh, looks great. Thanks, everyone. Um, I'll be back next year. Um, Is it enough to sort of get an occasional email updated with some pictures, a video? What's sort of interesting for you in this process? It's probably a bit of a big store of all those things. It, It comes down to obviously the preference of the individual where appropriate, we would love for everybody to come and visit yep. their square meter. I mean, a business doing that would be kind of fun as part of a conference or something, an offsite. Absolutely. And we've enabled that with yep. some of our key partners. At the same time, there are ways in which we can bring those projects to you. And so whether that's through our videos and channels or whether it's through other leveraging of technology, and I'll give you an example. Last year, we partnered with Lendlease, who were running a sustainability summit out of the very building that we run out of Melbourne Connect. And they agreed to not just talk about sustainability, but to do something. And so they protected the equivalent floor space, 5,800 square metres. That's really cool. We then created 10 square metre bundles for all of the delegates of that event so that rather than just go home with a tote bag, the individuals went home with something meaningful. And then we created an augmented reality experience in the foyer of that so that through phones and iPads you could see images and videos 
of the projects you were supporting as well as birds flying around your head. Oh, that's so good. And so bringing that kind of nature to the individual we see as a critical part of our role. Yeah, I love that. And so the money that um, goes towards purchasing these credits, um, do you contract or provide people who are then the, you know, go and check on or do the work to maintain the um, biological diversity of that land? Yeah, great question. So Wilderlands doesn't own or manage land ourselves. Yep. We've created a methodology and then technology alongside that that brings these one square metre units to life. We rely on conservation organisations who do the work and so for every unit that we sell, the vast majority goes to them yep. to ensure, A, the project is permanently protected and, B, the ongoing management of that for 20 years. Hmm. Uh, and we do that also through other mechanisms such as not all of the money goes straight to the conservation organisation straight up. We hold some of it to ensure that they're meeting the obligations of the ongoing monitoring plan, that our team, our lead ecologist, ensures the work is being done and then an annuity is paid every year. Um, and that that's also an important process because this is privately held land. Yeah. It means that, that that project or property could be sold. Yeah. And so the new owner is obligated to manage it in perpetuity and the funds then go to them to support that activity as well. Interesting. So, yeah, because I mean, I just, I went all of a sudden into my formal lawyer, property law brain. So, presumably, any project that goes up on the site um, for sponsorship or credit purchase, uh, there's some sort of contract or agreement that, you know, that will be honoured and the, those people will be allowed onto the grounds to to maintain that um, that Correct. plot. Yeah, that's right. And there's this a whole range of management and monitoring plans that are put in place by third-party ecologists to ensure that protection is occurring. Uh, and then we've also got our own expectations um, as the partner that's helping fund that work. And what's your experience been with people who participate with their plots of land and do that? Because, you know, like I imagine, um, like best case scenario, it's like, yeah, all good, mate, sort of no worries. And then worst case scenario, it's like, what the hell is that mob doing on my land? My cows are over here and I've got all this inspection stuff happening here and they didn't call, they didn't ring the doorbell, they just on my land. <laughs> what happens? Yeah, well, we... We were very uh, clear from the outset that we wanted to launch with a well-established, well-experienced conservation organisation sure. partner. And so the four projects are owned and managed by that one partner at this point in time. Great. Since we launched in August last year, we've had nearly weekly inquiries from other landholders and conservation organisations, both in Australia and beyond, saying, we love what you do, we want to partner with you, how can we unitise our project? And we really look forward to being able to turn on more projects, it really, frankly, will come down to demand. What What is the, like, I think frameworks that exist today have made it fairly easy to map the impact of um, carbon reduction um, or, you know, good land management and, you know, reductions in carbon is what you see everywhere with sort of food, um, I think, you know, ESG, land management. How do you reflect the positive impact of biodiversity and how's that measured through the sort of credit system? Yeah, good question. And it might be... A I guess an opportunity to just very quickly give you a, a history of credits Please. and how it's yeah. come to pass. So um, I'll bore you for one minute and then get into the details. No, 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 it's not a bore. It's I love this <laughs> stuff. So in the early 90s, the Convention on Biological Diversity and the Convention on Climate Change were both ratified at the same time. So collectively the world said we've got to do things about climate change and nature loss. But the way we kind of explain it is, and it's a bit crude, but 
for, for about 30 years now, nature and biodiversity loss has kind of been sitting on its hands, whereas the co- climate and carbon space has grown astronomically with things like the Kyoto Protocol, Paris Agreement, and then the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. We saw the world embrace and have confidence in the idea of a carbon ton or a carbon credit, a mechanism that enabled us to measure our impact and to offset that impact. Now, at the same time in the nature and biodiversity space, uh, there's been attempts at commitments, uh, but it wasn't until really last year's COP15 in Montreal and the subsequent task force on nature-related financial disclosures where there's now become a greater awareness and confidence in we need to do the same. So much like in carbon, being net zero means um, you have measured your impact. And let's take a business, for instance, measured your impact on nature. You're going to minimise what you can, then you offset the rest. The expectation in the future is that businesses will also measure their direct impact on nature. And we know that over 50% of our GDP is heavily dependent on nature. Mm. No sector is uh, not tarnished in terms of its direct impact and reliance on nature. Yep. So measuring that, minimising what you can, and then mitigating the rest. And that's where I guess we'll see voluntary credits like ours yes. play a part. So that's, that's the new type of credit that's coming in. So I think most people would be familiar with carbon offset credits. Now this is biodiversity offset credits in a way. And there's two different... Um, just to delineate between ourselves and, say, offsets. So in Australia now, for over 20 years, there have been biodiversity offsets. If you're a developer, be it the government or a property developer, and you're about to impact native vegetation, you have to, by law, offset that damage. And there are mechanisms and uh, registries in place that enable that. Our business is predicated on net gains. We've, we've been established to be part of the protecting more of nature. Yeah. So our Biodiversity credits, positive or, or like carbon positive. That's right. Yep. So our credits can't be used. Or negative, is it, with carbon? Carbon negative? Uh, I think you might be right. I can't remember. <laughs> yeah, sorry, a bit confused. But yeah. <laughs> but long story short, we've created voluntary credits. Yeah. So they can't be used to offset for other de- Okay, great. That, that's a really good distinction. I appreciate that. So um, it's – it's absolutely fascinating. And so how is this going to help businesses on their sort of nature positive journey? Because obviously I think there are your natural motivations. There are many businesses like Len Lease, you said, just sort of came to you and said, we want to do this because it's a good thing to do. Um, but many other, um, especially listed companies would be saying, look, I've got ESG commitments to meet. Um, so what am I going to do? So perhaps just if you could address, um, you know, f- for any form of business who have a nature sort of positive desire, how this uh, would assist them on that journey. Yeah. And look, it's fair to say that up until this point in time, engaging with biodiversity credits has been somewhat of a discretionary uh, and nice to have. Yep. We anticipate in the near future that it will be a must-have, a social license to operate. As mentioned, at an ESG level, your ability as a business to measure and mitigate against that impact. Other examples of where we've engaged with partners, uh, it's kind of driven by what are their motivations? Are they trying to engage customers, staff, investors, their brand? And we've seen examples of how we've partnered with different businesses to fulfill some of those. So I mentioned earlier the Lendlease example around an event. We've partnered with a live body who are an Adelaide-based beauty brand who are, uh, I'm not sure if I should mention, <laughs> maybe a, 
uh, it's jumping the gun here, but they're launching next year a product that's been inspired by our Kurong Lakes projects. Wow. Uh, the sensors and the flora of that region. And for every product they sell, one square metre will be protected permanently. Yeah. And so a great way for them to engage their brand and their customers. Yeah. Uh, other examples are partnering with uh, Elephant, who are a MAP alum, uh, who are a gifting platform. So staff. Oh, now. weren't they your fellow pitchers at MAP? Correct. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Yeah, they, no, they were great. And so one of the many benefits for us going through MAP was building a partnership with Elephant, mm. uh, through whom which we engage with staff members who can choose Wilderlands, a bundle of Wilderlands square metres alongside other options um, uh, put to them by their business. Um, and so there are a range of ways in which we're engaging at the uh, various stakeholder levels. Yeah. And so how does this, are there frameworks that accurately enable companies or corporates to report on how that biodiversity purchase like positively impacts their reporting? Yeah, great question. So very recently, the Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, also known as the TNFD, was released. And within that, there are frameworks and guidelines, but alongside that, there are other tools that are available to businesses. Um, and we would encourage businesses who are going on this nature positive journey to be exploring um, whether they're uh, business for nature tools or TNFD tools that might help them, depending on what sector they're in, to make calculations and clear decisions around what they're trying to do and what they're trying to achieve. Uh, and I guess at the very least come to us to have a conversation around what part we might be able to play. Yep. Some of the demonstrations of that, for instance, are companies who are looking at their footprint of their assets and saying, well, what would it look like if we were to protect the equivalent of our footprint? Yeah. And that's a very, frankly, quite a simple and effective way yeah. for them to have an immediate impact. I like the simplicity. I must say the, the ability for a lendlease to say, um, this is our floor. Let's protect the equivalent of this floor in nature. Is like um, it's very simple cognitively in, and in concept too. I like yeah. that. Yeah, and and that's another reason why we've lent into the one square meter. Yep. Um, the hectare is generally the size that most uh, credit developers and our peers globally are looking to measure against. And we appreciate that because it's universal. Hmm. Uh, but for us, we wanted to have something that was a bit more digestible. Well, I mean, I'm not great with measurement of land. Um, if, can you show me with your hands what a square meter is? Like we're in this little podcast space now. How many square meters would be in this space, do you estimate? Uh, I'd say it's probably 12 square meters, four by three. Okay. Wow. So so one might be kind of like this. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, no, no one can see this. So great, cl clearly, great it's, oh, it's top podcasting. This is just yeah. so. Anyway, um, it's, well, the typical bedroom would be about this size, right? So yeah, between twelve and uh, fourteen. Well, that's see, that's a helpful use of visuals and approximation. So yeah. your typical bedroom is twelve square meters. So yeah. divide that by twelve, pick a little spot, and then you've got your one meter squared concept. That's right. Fantastic. All right, for all the simpletons like myself, that's that's an easy way to think about it. Why do you think biodiversity? is the new carbon, and, and, and maybe sort of to that end, I've always had a bit of trouble with the notion of carbon offsetting schemes, like can I trust them? Like I'm going to go fly on X airline next week. Should I just buy, opt into their offsetting carbon scheme? What happens when I do that? And how do I know it's doing anything useful? Mm. It's a similar conversation, I guess, to 
uh, one of your recent podcasts around charity and how do I know that I can trust the charity is doing what they say they do. Yeah. And it's important to know that, you know, and, and I can't speak on behalf of other developers, carbon or biodiversity, but for us, what was really important is that we built um, our promise and our standard on existing robust uh, legislation and infrastructure so that a third party could come along and do their due diligence on what we do and our promise and have confidence that we're going to fulfil what we say we do. Yeah. And so I think what's really important is that any, whether it's carbon credit and project or biodiversity credit and project, that you're able to digest what their promise is and then through third-party verification ensure that there's a trail back to that uh, impact. And I, certainly one of the things that we're proud of is that we work directly with the landholder and conservation organisation. Mm. There's not a lot of uh, middlemen, so to speak, between your purchase, that square metre and the impact you're having. And so that's great. I, I double-ended another question on, on that and that's my fault. Um, so, you know, why do you think that biodiversity sort of is the new carbon in a sense or why is it so important for you to enter this space? You could have just said, look, carbon uh, offsets, are, you know, um, no one's doing a good enough job. I'll just jump in there. But you jumped in a different uh, pool. So curious yeah. why. Well, I, I explained a little bit earlier about how we think biodiversity is going to catch up with carbon and climate. Yeah, yeah. But I think actually when it comes down to it, when it comes to nature and biodiversity, you can feel it. You can see it. It's the furry and the feathered. It's tangible. It's very tangible mm. compared to a compound, which we can't see. Uh, and and also um, you know, we've seen over 70% of loss of wildlife since 1970. Now, you and I weren't around in 1970, but our parents' generation were. Mm. And as they're looking around – so the world that they were born into and the impact and the change that's happening, that's happening more and more rapidly. You've got a, a new one-year-old at home. Mm. You know, what is the world going to look like for him in 30 years' time? So we've got a real important job to uh, protect that and rejuvenate um, for that those future generations. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's extremely well said. Um, so... I think this is obviously an immense undertaking. How's it going traction-wise? Because you've talked about a few of your partners and that there's been plenty of interest. Where to from here and sort of what does the, the road ahead look like for you? Yeah, so we created Wilderlands knowing that we were ahead of a game, ahead of a market. You were paddling before the wave arrived. That's right. And, and we also deliberately lent into the startup ecosystem, I guess, to – ensure that we were building the right infrastructure as a business, testing ourselves on platforms in front of inquiring audiences, whether they were buyers or investors or just interested parties. Um, and what that has helped force us to do is to go, right, who are our customers and how do we engage with them? Whether you're an individual who's passionate, what what is it that's going to get you to uh, jump online and protect 10 square metres today, or whether you're a business that is in a sector that is having a direct impact on nature today or anticipating regulation coming into the future, how do we prepare ourselves to be the right partner of choice for you? And um, I'd, I'd like to think that we're trending in the right direction. Uh, we've, we've so far protected 
you know, over 85,000 square metres um, permanently through our platform, which is a terrific start, but it's also a drop in the ocean. And so we're really excited about the conversations we're having, particularly with companies who are now starting to place nature positive alongside net zero and are, are looking to do meaningful work. Yeah, fantastic. Look, that's uh, so well said. Just coming back to your work history, and you, you talked earlier about World Vision and, and the child sponsorship program. I, I can't help but sort of think of a little bit of a parallel there. And I don't know whether this is the genesis of any of your thinking, but like for me, like I I would think, you know, like nature is a person in some ways, like a small, you know, block of land is just as much living as a, yeah, person. So did you take much from that sort of as part of this in a way or? Yeah, I think there's a lot that has been gained from both, not just my experience, but uh, my co-founder and CMO, Heath Evans, who's also worked at World Vision. Um, And in fact, whilst he was there, he oversaw a project um, whereby Sam Gash, who's an endurance runner, ran from one side of India to another, 3,500 yes, 3, kilometres uh, to raise awareness for education, particularly in girls in India. And um, the mantra there was one step at a time. How do you run? 3,500 kilometres. Yeah. You do it one step at a time. How do you eat an elephant? We, we shouldn't, by the way, <laughs> eat no, elephants. I wouldn't have done We're so. on a conservation <laughs> podcast down at Mike. Come on. That's right. Yep. That's right. But how do you do these things? Mm. One step at a time. Yep. And so I think to your point, we certainly looked at, you know, what, what does engaging an individual's heart and mind look like and how do we do that in a meaningful way? And people can not only buy 10 square metres, but they can subscribe. Um but I guess we also recognise that it's it's a bit of a tough game to expect individuals to, to continue to dip into their pockets to support this kind of thing. So it needs to be balanced by the very businesses and government that are also playing a big part and need to um, get behind protecting nature. Well, I think what you're doing is pioneering and quite magical and very dynamic and innovative. Been a pleasure chatting with you. How can people, first of all, what should people and businesses do? What would you like to see them do as, as a result of this conversation? Yeah, I, I guess if you're a business owner um, and you are aware that you have a reliance on nature and that you have a customer base and a staff base that want to see you doing the right thing, that uh, frankly, we'd like to think we're a pretty easy partner to deal with and we'd love to have a chat about what that might look like for you, whether you're a small business or an ASX-listed company. um, We are building out, uh, I guess, a suite of product solutions that can fulfil needs. Um, But then at the same time, uh, we we exist for the individual and the ability for you today to either purchase for yourself or as a gift for somebody else, permanent protection of, Vulnerable habitat. Which Get some we- land. Go on. Go go protect some land. Be, be your own emperor of a square Jump meter on. or two. Jump on board. No, that's terrific. And do you have um, – how are you going funding-wise? Are you raising? Are you, do you have your planned raise coming up or uh, – No, we don't at the moment. We've got a uh, – fortunately, we've got a patient angel investor. Um, and so we're not planning a raise at this point in time. Um, but I, I think it will largely come down to – scalable opportunities so once once there's enough momentum in certain sectors uh we will look to double down so fantastic we'll be back will you um, look i'm sure from hearing this there might even be people that are interested in uh helping you in some way should they also reach out 
Oh, by all means, we welcome Great. all opportunity. And how can, uh, if you want to just rattle off the website and your uh, contact details? Yeah, sure. So wilderlands.earth is our website and my email is ash.nop, K-N-O-P, at wilderlands.co. Thanks so much for being with me today, Ash. Thanks, Mike. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player and why not share it with a friend or two? If you want more from your Humans of Purpose experience, become a Humans of Purpose member today through our new platform, Supercast. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes. If you have a message to share with our audience about your brand, products or services, we have a wide variety of paid promotional packages available. Please get in touch by hitting the link in our show notes.